Our first reading this morning is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 5, verse 1 to 7. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and the people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the people of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second reading this morning is a responsive reading from Psalm 80. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt, you drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls? so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit. The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stalk that your right hand planted, and for the child whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on, be on the one at your right hand, the one whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. 
The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We stand for the reading of the gospel. The Lord be with you. The Holy Gospel according to St. John in the 15th chapter, beginning at the first verse. Glory be to thee, O Christ. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear, the, bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. This is the gospel of Christ. Praise be to thee, O Christ. Christ. So remain standing. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word through which you speak to us and reveal yourself to us. So I pray in light of that truth that I as preacher would just get out of the way. Far less of me and far more of you that your people gathered would be edified, your son Jesus glorified, for we ask this in his name. Amen. Would you be seated, please? A crisis of faith. None of us is immune to it. We either have or are or will go through it. A crisis of faith. Many things instigate it. Perhaps you were formed in a life of faith with a very clear us-and-them mentality. We are the wise, the good, the saved, and they are the ignorant, the sinful, the lost. Then you began to have relationships with whomever that they were and discovered they're not who you were led to believe. A crisis of faith. Perhaps you were motivated in the Christian life with a solid dose of fear. Don't do that, or this, or that, or this other thing will happen. And you did that, and none of those things you were warned about happened. The crisis of faith. But perhaps the most fertile ground for such a crisis is circumstance. A sharp disconnect between what you believe about God and the circumstances you find your life in. Knowing that God is a God of healing, a God who hears our prayers, you prayed fervently for physical health and well-being, for the healing and restoration of that broken relationship. You were diligent and faithful and earnest. And nothing. Nothing. A crisis of faith. Knowing that God is good and loving has given you certain expectations of what your life should look like. The fulfillment of your good yearnings and and dreams and hopes, or at at the very least, the absence of, of conflict, of death, of disease, of tragedy. And yet, 
your good yearnings still go unfulfilled, your life marred by suffering, a crisis of faith. What do we do in, in such a place when the anger bubbles over and the clouds of disillusion gather and our foundation weakens and begins to crumble beneath us? Uh, some of us, we just, just walk away. Must not be true. Not worth the time or effort to re-examine our convictions. Others of us will just bury it down. We don't want to let the questions and the doubts in. We can't imagine life without that faith. And the Christian community almost encourages this, right? There's often no space given to the questions, the doubts. We feel the judgment. We feel the shame. We just bury it down. Others of us will double down on our convictions, all the while knowing they're not as secure and solid as they were before. The cracks are showing. They crumble beneath our grasp. What do we do in such a crisis of faith? One of the early Christian teachers, Athanasius, once wrote a letter to a friend. And he was trying to open his friend up to the treasury that is the book of Psalms. And he said, you can go to the Psalms with whatever need or trouble you're facing and find the words to give expression to the deep currents and movements of your heart, to give expression to the doubt and the anger and the disappointment and the grief and the sorrow. Not simply to find the words to give expression to those movements, to find remedy for them, to allow the character of the God that we pray to to shape those movements, to bring healing and wholeness and restoration. For the four Sundays of Advent this year, we're going to be looking at four psalms, specific psalms that have been chosen by Christians across the generations to reflect upon at Advent each struggling with something that invites us to behold, to receive, to worship, to yearn for Jesus. Now our first psalm, Psalm 80, which I'll invite you to either turn in your Bibles or on your phone or in your pew Bibles on page 540, is a psalm that gives expression to our heart's movement when we're in the midst of a crisis of faith, a crisis brought on by circumstance. Now, the psalmist's particular circumstance was this. 200 years before this moment, a disagreement over leadership and taxation had separated the 12 tribes of Israel into two kingdoms, Israel to the north and Judah to the south. Now the rising world power of Assyria threatens them both. Assyria attacks Israel Those not butchered are carried off into exile, and it would seem that refugees would flood the borders of Judah. Assyria's armies now stand threateningly close. How could this happen? We're God's chosen, the the sheep of his pasture. There's, There's fear and anger and disillusionment, a crisis of faith. People's response to such a crisis mirrors our own. Some turn from God, place their trust in human strength, 
alliances are made with Egypt. They will save us. Others double down on their convictions, developing this superstitious belief that because God is in his temple in Jerusalem, he'll never let anything happen to to it. But the psalm reflects and invites a very different response to such a crisis of faith. You know, when we have a problem with another person, going to that other person is often the last option we take, isn't it? We'll stew about it, right? Have conversations with them in our head. Imagine that they have harmed us in some way and we've verbally put them in their place. Or we'll go to other people and we'll say, you never guess what so-and-so did to me, said to me. And we'll run them down together. And by the time we go to the other person, if we ever do, that division has been widened. The possibility of reconciliation lessened. In a crisis of faith, our problem is with God. And the psalmist invites us not to stew, not to complain to others, but to go to God. To position ourselves before God in prayer. Verse 1. Give ear. It's a demand. Listen to me, shepherd of Israel. You whose glory reside between the cherub and the temple. Stir up your strength. Do something about this. Save us. The psalmist invites us in that crisis of faith to position ourselves before God in prayer. But once there, what do we do? What do we say? We make our grievances known. We bear our hearts We speak our minds. If it is anger, be angry. If it is doubt, question. If it is complaint, complain. Now, some of us will will say in response to, no, 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 that's blasphemous. That's sacrilegious. We we, we don't speak to God like that. There's often this pressure in prayer to, to put on an act, right? To hide our true selves, to cloak our true emotions, to clean up our language. But what do we think we're accomplishing by that? Do we not know that God knows the secrets of our hearts? We're only harming ourselves in that. The psalmist invites us to lay bare our hearts before God. Verse 4, how long will you be angry with our prayers? For it seems that you're not answering and you're doing the exact opposite of what we're asking for. How long will you be angry? And the choice of language in this complaint is instructive. Verse 5, you did this, God. You caused our sorrow. You have made our nation into a laughingstock. Why would you even consider praying to the God you believe has caused your pain? It's interesting as you read the biblical accounts of the Assyrian conquest of Israel, at times it will lay the responsibility at the feet of the Assyrians. They did this. Their pride, their their greed, their, their violence, they did this. And at other times, as we saw in that Isaiah passage, it'll lay the responsibility at God's feet. You did this. So how can those two things be true at the same time? I don't know. It's a mystery. 
But the scriptures invite us over and over again to live in light of that mystery, to live as if both are true. God is sovereign, and we are responsible. And I think that's what the psalmist is doing here, inviting us to live in light of that mystery when he lays the blame at God's feet. You did this. You're sovereign over this. Which makes that cry of anger and anguish also a cry of hope. Because you did this, because you are sovereign over this, you are the only one who can do anything about it. I'm rejecting human strength. I'm rejecting the option of an alliance with Egypt. I'm rejecting the superstitious belief that nothing will happen to us because you live in the temple in Jerusalem. And I recognize that you are the only one who can help us. I'm angry with you. You did this. But you're our only hope. Verse 7. You who have commanded the hosts of heaven, restore us. Save us. But the psalmist is not done bearing his heart, expressing the anger and disillusionment swirling within him. Next, the wisdom and purposes of God are on the chopping block. From verse 8 on, the psalmist recounts the history of Israel using a particular biblical image, that of the vine. You see, the story of the Bible is a story of a God who in love seeks to mend what is broken to renew, to restore his good creation. One of the primary ways that is done in the biblical history is by calling a people, Israel, to reflect his character, to live out his renewing purposes for the world, to bear witness to his call to return to his love. And Leviticus 19 is a great example of this. It's a chapter, a grouping of laws given to Israel that seem to cover a multitude of topics, but one phrase holds them all together. I am the Lord your God. Don't reap your fields right up to the edges. Leave some for the poor in your midst. I am the Lord your God. Don't bear false witness against a neighbor. I am the Lord your God. Pay your workers fair wages. I am the Lord your God. Don't take vengeance or bear a grudge. I am the Lord your God. Love the stranger, the refugee in your midst. I am the Lord your God. What's the saying? Do this because I'm God and I said so? No. It's telling us that when Israel lives this way, they will reflect the character of their Lord and God. They will point to God's renewing purposes for the world And in so doing, says Deuteronomy 4, they will lead others to behold and worship the God who calls them to live this way such that the renewing purposes of God would cover the earth. And the vine and its fruit was the biblical image used to point to this purpose for Israel. And the psalmist then in these verses is reminding God of this purpose for Israel. All of it to say... If this was your purpose for us, then why are you allowing the Assyrians to do this? Why have you broken down the walls such that the wild boars of the other nations trample upon your vineyard? How could you let this happen, God? You're an idiot. How could you be so foolish? How will your purposes now be fulfilled? 
As Athanasius put it in his letter to his friend, the psalmist is giving us words to make our own, words to express the anger and disillusionment that is, in the, that is found in our hearts in the midst of a crisis of faith. But his vice to his friend wasn't just about offering those words to God as our own heart's utterance, but allowing the character of the God that we pray to, to shape those movements, to bring healing and wholeness and restoration. Even in the midst of the anger and disillusionment that is expressed in this psalm, we can see the beginning of that healing, the trajectory has been said. You see, there's a refrain in this psalm. It's found in verses 3 and 7 and 19. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we would be saved. It's a yearning to behold light from God's face, to have a real experience of his presence. And it's a prayerful yearning that is already being answered over the course of this psalm. Really? Where? Well, each refrain here is slightly different. Verse 3, Restore us, O God, Elohim, the divine name given at creation. It's a cry for help, yes, but it's distant, remote. Verse 7, the refrain shifts. Restore us, O God of hosts, Elohim, Savot. It's the divine name that was given in the Exodus. The psalmist is now counting on God to intervene as God did with the people in slavery in Egypt. That God will care enough about the situation to do something about it. Verse 19, the refrain shifts again. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Now the covenant name of God is added. Yahweh. The psalm now orients us to a God whose loving commitment is for his people, who will mobilize the resources of heaven to do something. Light is beginning to be seen from God's face, a real experience of God's presence, all because the anger and disillusionment were brought to God. That's not the only evidence of healing in this psalm. Even in the psalmist angry questioning of the purposes of God for Israel, there's a, a subtle shift. All of a sudden, without any explanation, the vine is no longer a nation. No longer Israel revealing the character of God, flooding the earth with justice and peace. All of a sudden, the vine is now a person. A man at God's right hand the Son of Man. There's this budding recognition and the beginnings of a repentant spirit that the nation of Israel will never in themselves bring about God's restoring purposes for the earth. But there will be one who will, a man at God's right hand, foreshadowing the one who would come and say, I am the true vine. Abide in me and my word and my love and you will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you will do nothing. The healing is coming because the anger and disillusionment 
were brought to God. You may not be in the place of this psalmist. In a crisis of faith born of circumstance, with torrents of anger swirling. But I would hazard a guess that there's probably a complexity of thoughts and emotions when you consider God. It could be disappointment, despair, doubt, distance, dryness. Whatever it might be, the psalmist is inviting us to come into the presence of God to position ourselves before him in prayer and bring those things before him as honestly and as openly as we possibly can and allow the character of the God that we pray to to shape those movements and bring healing and wholeness. As I was reflecting on this passage this week, I was brought to remember some of the most transformative prayers in my own life, and there was a common thread. These were prayers that I brought as honestly as I possibly can before God, such things as hatred, envy, disappointment, anger. It was a simple combination of coming before God with as much emotional honesty as I possibly could, and the Spirit brought about Incredible transformation over time, healing, wholeness, restoration. That's what the psalm invites us to. Whatever it is, bring it before him openly, honestly. And once there, what should our prayer be? Well, let the refrain guide us, restore us, let your face shine, that we would be healed. It's striking, isn't it? I mean, the psalmist is in the midst of a political, economic, humanitarian crisis. And what is his prayer? Give us a leader? No. Give us wisdom? No. Give us military might? No. Let your face shine. What is needed above everything else is an experience of God's presence, for that will change how we engage the political, economic, humanitarian crisis of our own time, our own age, that will change how we engage the crisis of our own lives. For to have a real experience of the presence of God is to be conformed to his likeness, not of duty or compulsion, but of an inner desire born of encountering his beauty, his love, his grace. That was a prayer that was answered that first Advent. When Jesus, born of Mary, came to reveal the fullness of God's grace, love, beauty, and purpose. And it is a prayer that we pray still this Advent as we yearn for his coming again in glory to make everything new. So may our prayer be, restore us, Emmanuel, God with us, true vine, let your face shine that we would be healed. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.